Hello, Democracy Group listeners. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, co-host of Democracy Matters. I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, co-host of Democracy Matters. I'm Sarah Akers, co-host of Democracy Matters. And I'm Logan Ziegler, program coordinator at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and another co-host on Democracy Matters. Our best episode of 2021 features an interview with Carolyn Quilloin Coleman. Carolyn was one of the original NAACP activists who helped to pass the 26th Amendment to the Constitution, and this year marked the 50th anniversary of that amendment. Jacqueline, why was this episode your favorite? This was my favorite episode this year purely because of what she had to say about uh, protesting. I like that she said that it is still important for young people to get out and advocate for what they have to say about anything and everything that's happening in our country or around the world. This podcast episode was probably one of my favorites because it was interesting to hear not about someone who has studied the civil rights movement, but from someone who was actually going through the civil rights movement and how she entered in her personal stories as she was also teaching us. I think for me, there are two reasons why this one's my favorite. One is another incredible reminder for us and especially for students um, that all of this was <laughs> not ancient history. This is, you know, still people living today who um, were active in this work. And um, I really really good reminder um, for us that um, while the struggle continues, all of this incredible um, big work was happening, you know, within the lifetimes of people that we engage with every day. Um, Another another really impactful thing for me was just um, here's this powerful advocate talking about the importance of work locally and being engaged um, in local politics and getting to know um, people at a local level who can make really impactful change in your community. And that's how it, it, that's how it starts, how change starts. And um, really the foundation of our democracy um, starts at a local level. It's so amazing that she continues to serve in her local government, even to this day. And for me also, it was so important to be linking the work of racial justice and political power, as well as how these struggles are not easy. They're not, and, and, but we have to keep at it. I think, you know, she, she said, there's no time to rest now. There's, there's work to do. And so we have to keep going. We hope you enjoy listening to our interview with Carolyn. If you like this episode, please head over to j.mu slash civic slash podcast to hear more. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong Whaley. I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, Communication Specialist at JMU Civic. This is Abraham Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and Faculty Member of Political Science here at James Madison University. And I am Angelina Clapp, the current Graduate Assistant at JMU Civic. Fifty years ago, the 26th Amendment to the United States Constitution took effect lowering the universal voting age in the United States from 21 years to 18 years. Millions of young Americans were extended the right to vote, empowering more young people than ever before. The movement to lower America's voting age was led by young people, especially by young black civil rights activists like Philomena Queen, Carolyn Quilloin Coleman, and James Brown Jr. of the NAACP. For this episode, we drove to North Carolina to sit down and talk with Carolyn Quilloin Coleman, 
who started her activism work as a teenager protesting segregation in Savannah, Georgia. In April 1969, she organized the NAACP-sponsored Youth Mobilization Conference in Washington, D.C. It was a gathering that brought together 2,000 young people from 33 states to lobby Congress in support of youth voting rights. The following year, testimonies by NAACP members led the United States Senate to amend the extension of the Voting Rights Act to give the right to vote to those between 18 and 21 years of age. On March 9, 1970, in testimony before Congress, James Brown Jr. of the NAACP made an explicit connection between the voting rights of black Americans and those of young people. He said, quote, the NAACP has a long and glorious history of seeking to redress grievances of the blacks, the poor, the downtrodden, and the victims of unfair and illegal actions and deeds. The disenfranchisement of approximately 10 million young Americans deserves, warrants, and demands the attention of the NAACP. On June 22, 1970, President Richard Nixon signed into law several amendments to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, despite his reservations that the Voting Rights Act amendments of 1970 included the amendment that lowered the voting age for all federal, state, and local elections. At the time, President Nixon said, if I were to veto, I would have to veto the entire bill, voting rights and all. If the courts hold the voting age provisions unconstitutional, however, only that one section of the act will be affected. Because the basic provisions of this act are of great importance, therefore, I am giving it my approval and leaving the decision on the disputed provision to what I hope will be a swift resolution by the courts. On December 21, 1970, the Supreme Court ruled in Oregon v. Mitchell that Congress could pass a change in the voting age at the federal level, but not at the state level. The Supreme Court decision placed a heavy election administration burden on the states. Supported by President Richard Nixon, the House and Senate responded by introducing a bill that would become the 26th Amendment, which stated, The right of citizens of the United States, who are 18 years of age or older to vote, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of age. It was passed by Congress on March 23rd and ratified by the required 38 states by July 1st, 1971. The amendment became law in 100 days, the fastest route to ratification of any of the 27 amendments to the Constitution. 10 million new voters were enfranchised with ratification. We hope you enjoy learning from Carolyn Quilloyne Coleman, who continues to serve on the Guilford County Board of Commissioners in North Carolina and on the National Board of Directors of the NAACP. We invite you to engage in the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Carolyn Quilloin Coleman, you've been involved in the work of voting rights and civil rights for much of your life. Can you speak to what initially led you into doing this type of work? Uh, I was a um, student at Alfred E. Beach High School in Savannah, Georgia. And the vice president of the local NAACP came to speak to my history class and um, told us about the NAACP Youth Council, which was meeting every Tuesday in Savannah, and um, told us about the work that was being done and challenged us to join this youth council. So I went to the youth council meeting, 
and there they were talking about sitting in. This was um, about a month after the sit-ins took place in Greensboro, North Carolina. And so, of course, we were just excited about that possibility and decided that um, we would sit in. Well, the first date that we scheduled to sit in, somehow the message got out into the community that we would be doing it. So we canceled it because we wanted it to be a surprise to the businesses that we would be sitting in. Um, we set another date and we, we met at the local, one of the local churches there, had prayer and divided into groups of four. I was in a group that was two, two young student women and two fellas. And of course, we walked down the street and sang and prayed and, and um, just talked about what we were doing. I think we were too young and naive to be afraid. We just did it because it was the thing to do. And um, when we arrived at Levy's department store, which had a lunch counter, um, there were just large numbers of white people standing at the door along with the police. No one said anything. We went and sat in at the counter. And there the, the uh, waitress told us that if we insisted on staying there, they would have to arrest us because they didn't serve black people at that counter. Um, we refused to move. And of course, the rest is history. We were arrested and um, Savannah began its civil rights movement in the sense of heightening up from where they were at that time. Um, when we, that Sunday, after we had a meeting with the local adult NAACP branch, they decided that they would have public mass meetings. And so that Sunday, they called in one of the larger churches in the city, a public mass meetings. It was just full of people. We'd never seen anything like that happen in Savannah. And um, when we told the people about what had happened, they started throwing their credit cards on the floor. Um, they were not going to shop at Levy's anymore. Well, interesting enough, at that time, the credit cards were not from store, from, uh, uh, let's say, um, MasterCard or something like that. It was from the particular store. So if you had a credit card from Levy's, I mean, that was one of the more expensive stores in the city, and they didn't want to lose business. And so when people started throwing those credit cards down, um, that certainly made a difference with Levy's, but still no desegregation. So we called a boycott of the stores downtown, boycotted and picketed for 18 months before we could get them to agree to let people sit at the lunch counter, work in the, at the counters, and that kind of thing. And so you were a high school student when you first started. That's correct. Mrs. Coleman, I wonder if you can share who influenced you the most and who some of your mentors were. Um, I'd have to give my mother credit for that. Um, we lived, of course, in a segregated community, and the streets in our community were not paved. And um, they, they were just dirt streets. And when it rained, there were just puddles of water. So you'd have to drive your car around to this side to avoid that puddle and drive to the other side to avoid another puddle. And um, we had no lights in the community. And so my mother and a group of citizens from that community 
began uh, collecting petitions. And of course, we went with her door to door to get petitions signed to take to the city council to no avail. This happened year after year after year. We just couldn't get those streets paved and couldn't get lights in the community. So when it comes to civil rights, my mother was my mentor. Now, the NAACP president, W.W. Law, was just a man that you enjoy sitting at his feet, listening to him talk about black history. And when as he talked about the history, not only of Savannah, but black history in general, you knew that you had to do something. You just could not sit there and let things continue as they were. And there were many other people, Eugene Gaston, Mercedes Arnold, just people from my community that um, met with us and talked about the challenges that faced us. Can you tell us what initially brought you to Alabama for this work? Yes, I, I had just graduated from college and um, a friend told me that the NAACP was going back into Alabama and she was going to be one of those persons that would work in Alabama and wanted to know if I was interested. Um, uh, I didn't know what she meant by going back into Alabama. Well, what happened is the NAACP had been banned in Alabama from operating by the governor. And so the organization had to leave the state because the governor was trying to get the names of all of the teachers that were members of the NAACP. And he was going to fire every one of them. So on the day that they tried to get our membership list, our then regional director, Ruby Hurley, uh, received a call from one of the workers in the governor's mansion. And it's interesting, I tell folk, don't just think that because a person is dusting and cleaning that they have no sense and they don't listen to what you're saying. This particular person listened to the discussion in the meeting that day. They were going to the NAACP office, retrieved the membership list, and that way they'd fire every black teacher in the state who was a member of the NAACP. So when they got when, when they got to the NAACP office, this person who was working in that room cleaning had already called the NAACP staff and told them that they were on the way. This is your, your governmental entity was going to take the NAACP's membership list. And as a result, Ruby Hurley and W.C. Patton, who were staff members of the NAACP, got in the car and took the back road all the way to Atlanta, Georgia from Birmingham with the NAACP's membership list. Now, when my friend Edna Jackson and I went to um, Alabama to work, it was nine years later, all of this had made its way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said they couldn't do that. They couldn't take the list and they couldn't ban the organization from the state and of course we were able to go back in. So Edna and I went back in with a woman by the name of Althea Simmons who was organizing adult branches and we were organizing youth units. And so that's how the NAACP got back into Alabama. You were in Memphis when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final speech 
I've been to the mountaintop before being assassinated in April of 1968. Can you share what you remember about that day and how it, along with Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, impacted you? Well, let, before I got to Memphis, I worked in Mississippi, and um, this was after Medgar Evers had been killed. And um, of course, we were trying to get people registered to vote then, and um, there was the question um, that was always asked, how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap? And of course, if you could ask that, answer that, you definitely could register to vote. And, um, and, and so we, we had that kind of challenge that faced us. And when I left uh, Mississippi, went to Memphis, my goodness, that was like going to heaven because things were so much better there. Um, we had a situation where the um, uh, sanitation workers had uh, tried to get an increase in pay and couldn't get it. And of course, they didn't have insurance. And the reason why insurance was so important is because uh, the way that all of this got started, they were out collecting garbage and um, it was raining and they sat on the back of the truck. Uh, and of course, the truck, somehow someone touched the, the lever that pulled that, that portion of trash back. Um, if you can imagine one of the old trucks, you sat there and there was something that pulled the trash into the truck. This uh, was accidentally touched and one of the men was killed as that was pulled, the trash was pulled into the truck. And of course, there was no insurance. He didn't have any way to be buried or anything. They had to collect money to bury him. And so these workers decided they were not going to work under these conditions anymore. So they spoke with community organizations about the fact that they wanted to meet with the city's powers that be to get an increase in pay. And they had tried for quite some time to get an increase and couldn't get it. So uh, those meetings were held. And of course, the mayor and city council would still not give them an increase in pay or insurance. So they started uh, calling for um, the city to then boycott. In fact, we started demonstrating. We didn't get to boycotting, but we started demonstrating. And I can see them now. They wore signs that said, I am a man, because they wanted to be treated as men. And um, so we, we began demonstrating there. And, um, wanted to heighten the activities. And that's when um, we were having meetings at churches and what have you, just with local leaders speaking each time we'd meet. And finally, someone said, well, we've got to increase our activities. And that's when they decided to invite Martin Luther King Jr. into the community. Um, he came and we were having nightly meetings in a place called Mason Temple, which was owned by the Church of God in Christ. It was the largest facility in the community other than the Civic Center. And um, we started having those meetings. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. was the speaker at all of these events every night. On the particular day that he was killed, I, I can remember having been picked up from work by my husband, um, who uh, picked me up about five o'clock. And maybe before we 
arrived at home, maybe it was 5.15, 5.20, it came on the radio that Martin Luther King had been shot. They weren't sure if he was dead at that time, but later did announce that he'd been killed. Um, they gave uh, information on where they thought the shooter was located. And of course, um, you know, everybody was just afraid in the community because he was a man that was out in the community with a gun and we didn't know where he was or who he would, who else he would shoot. So we made it home and that's when we heard all the, the definitive information about his leaving the city, driving somewhere. We still don't understand why in the state of Tennessee, they couldn't have found him on one of the highways. But um, it was a, it was just a lost cause. He got out of that community safely. And um, we, we then decided that we would have to do more. And that's when we began demonstrating even more than we had in the past. Hmm. Mrs. Coleman, you organized the first major national conference of youth in Washington, D.C. to lobby for 18 to 21 year olds to get the right to vote. Can you share about why it was important to link voting rights and political power to racial justice? Well, I happen to have known a little bit about the importance of these two. Um, Georgia, unbelievably, was one of the states that you could register to vote at age 18. So I was, I was a registered voter long before friends across the country were able to do so. And as you talk to young people across the country, and, and of course, because of the civil rights movement, everybody wanted to do more. Inclusive in all of that was just the right to vote. And um, so the NAACP decided that um, it, it had to do something in this area and decided to have a conference in D.C. We, um, we called on young people who were members of organizations that were involved in community activities from across the country. And they came, black, white, all, all, all colors came and um, decided that we would then lobby our uh, uh, congresspersons, which we did. Now, interesting enough, in the NAACP, before we did this, there was some discussion about whether we should do it. And it wasn't because the organization didn't want to do it, but Clarence Mitchell, who was um, our head of the Washington Bureau, was concerned that at that time, it might impact the work we had just accomplished, which was the Voting Rights Act. So would now, if you reopen all of this, would the legislators go back and, and change the Voting Rights Act? So once you start tinkering you know, with, with one part of legislation, you always have to worry about who's going to go back in and tinker with the other part of it. So we finally decided that we had to do it. And so that's when we decided that we would just open all gates to making it possible for young people to, to vote. And, and um, as, as we began to lobby, there were adults that joined us. Uh, Hubert Humphrey was very much involved with that. Um, uh, Ed Kennedy, uh, all of them uh, certainly helped us to get that legislation passed. We are approaching Constitution Day in September of 2021. Can you speak to the importance of the 26th Amendment 
to the Constitution? As a woman, I would say, other than the fact that we were not able to vote, um, I can't think of something that would have taken away our personhood more than not allowing us to have full privileges. And um, so I, I think it was very important for us to pass that. Um, we, we did pass it. It was something that um, it was interesting about whether the southern states would, but of course they did also. And that was, that was one of the things that brought more joy, I think, to women than just about anything that we've had passed in the past. Um, I don't need to tell you that because of that, women are now in prominent positions, in elected positions from the Congress right on down to the local level. And um, it has inspired us to do more and, and serve more. And um, I, I just think that that was one of the greatest things that could have happened to women. There has been an increase in restrictive voting measures that have been passed in multiple state legislators. What advice do you have for young people today working to expand voter access in the face of all of these um, restrictive measures being passed, including in your home state of Georgia? I think more than anything, young people have to do what we've always done. They have to get out there and fight against these kinds of laws. Now, unfortunately, you know, it's almost as though we're reliving our lives all over again. Many of the things that I fought for years ago, they're this resurfacing. And, and um, it's, it's unfortunate that we'd have to fight those very same battles all over again. But some legislators have learned that African-Americans voting will vote and vote some of them out. Young people will vote and vote some of them out. And that's why they're after the young people and the African-Americans. And so you find that many of the states, including Georgia, will continue to try to enact this kind of, of legislation. But we have to work. There's, there's no time to rest now. We have to really stay on our guard and see that this does not happen in our community. We have fought it in North Carolina. Voter suppression, we took to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and we won there, but came back and they tried it again. You know, we just have to keep fighting the same battles. That's, that's what bothers me more than anything. Just the same battles over and over again. We know what's behind it. We know what the population change will be. And we know the importance of making life better for people. And uh, all you're doing is trying to take away some of the privileges that, that we're entitled to as a result of being citizens. And that's just so far from being fair of anything that I can think of that we've done in this country. Now, if we lose democracy, I, I, I am so afraid of what will happen to America that sometimes I, I go to bed and wake up in the middle of the night just thinking about it because if we lose democracy in this country, we would have lost it in the world because I think it will just move from place to place. And that's why it's so important for us to fight to keep America a democratic 
small d country. You mentioned that um, many of the the um, efforts to expand voter access are are initiatives that have continued over time, going back and fighting the same battles. In what ways do you see um, similarities from today compared to the 1960s and 70s when you were working to expand voting? And in what ways is it different now in your mind? I think it's different, first of all, because young people have, have tasted freedom and they're, they're just not willing to sit here and let them continue to do what they want to do, which is to put us back another century almost. Um, when we were fighting those battles, we had never known life to be any better. So we couldn't say, oh, this is what we're accustomed to and we're losing it. But what you see young people losing today is something that we had not even gained at the time that we began our fight. So there is that difference. The other thing is that when people have an opportunity to see what life is, can be like, I just don't think they're going to sit there and, and take whatever is given to them. And so I, I, I just see that it is so different now because um, it was tough then. There were people who, African-Americans, who told us I would not be out there fighting like that because you may lose your life. And, uh, you know, there were those of us who were naive, I, I'll call it now, because we were naive enough that we would have been willing to lose our lives. Not that young people now wouldn't do that, but I, I think many of them know that they don't have to lose their lives in order to do the work that we've done. I think of um, the three students who were killed in Mississippi, the James Reeve, that group that came down. Um, fortunately, we don't have to have students coming from the North to the South now to tell us uh, that they're with us. We, we, we do get support, but, you know, it's more in a commemorative thing um, in Selma, Alabama, that kind of thing. But we don't have buses of people coming from the north to the south just to help us work to do the things that we need to do. It's more community-oriented. You, you just spoke about much of the sacrifices that folks had to make in order just to get some basic rights that they should have had, including voting rights. Um, I wonder if you can speak to the sacrifices people, especially young people now, need to make in order to strengthen our democracy. I think more than anything, they have to realize what's at stake. I'm not sure that many people, as, as many people as need be, have realized that um, when you take away the right to vote, you've taken away one of the things that this country has guaranteed from the day that we were born. And so it's important for young people to realize that to lose that means that you've lost one of the greatest things that could happen to you. Um, we always look forward to obtaining the, attaining the age of 18 where we could vote. And that's why I work so hard to make it possible for young people across this country to be able to vote at age 18. Because next to your 16th birthday, that's the biggest thing that happens in your life. 
um, that age 18 being able to vote. And um, they were sending, drafting young people at age 18 to go to the military, but they couldn't vote. Can you imagine that? So when you start talking about the sacrifices that young people need to make, I think they just need to think about the history, think about what's at stake, and know that they have a challenge that they must meet also. You know, it, it's something about life that means it's cyclical. And so it doesn't just happen to my, my age group. There's a challenge for your age group. There's a challenge for younger people. And so on and on, every, every generation has its own challenges. You have seen enormous amounts of political change. Can you speak to different strategies to influence political change? And when is a march effective relative to other forms of political participation? I guess I'm old school. I think a march is effective at any time. Uh, folk just need to get out and let the powers that be know that they're concerned. And so a march is, is, is just effective and important at all times. But, but you want to make sure that that march is, is uh, nonpartisan. You want to make sure that it's one that um, is nonviolent. People have to understand that you're not talking about carrying weapons. You're talking about being nonviolent in your activities. And so that's, that's very important. Now, that's just one of the strategies. I think one of the best things that anyone can do is go door to door seeking to determine who's registered to vote and who's not registered. If you're not registered, then have the forms to register those persons that are not registered. It is so interesting because when I started in this work, especially down in Mississippi, you had to work out in the community and take people downtown to vote, to register. You, you, you didn't have the forms where you could just register someone there. You had to take them down uh, to, to the um, Board of Elections in order to register. And especially in Mississippi, we worked on, in Jackson, uh, one street called Ferry Street, which is the, where the black community primarily did its shopping. We would have to stop people who had children with them, ask them if they were registered to vote, if they were not registered to vote, we'd have to put them in our car along with the children who may be crying or hot or whatever and take them down one by one to register them to vote. So we've come so far now. We have forms that we can take with us, give them to the person to register and, and uh, then give it back to us and we can take it to the Board of Elections and of course they're registered to vote. So it's so much easier now to do that and um, I just encourage people to get out, work in their communities. There are some organizations that have all of this on computers now. They can tell you where to go. Um, you don't just have to get out and walk every community. They can tell you which houses on the block uh, you find registered voters, which ones are not registered. So it's easier. You just have to get out and do the work. You still serve on your local county commission. Can you speak to why it is important for people to be involved in local government? Local government 
is the basis from which everything emanates in our community. If, if you say you, you're born, if you don't have a birth certificate that that local government has, has approved as a local birth certificate, you weren't born. If you say you died, if you don't have a death certificate that the local government has approved, you didn't die. If you buy a car and you don't have a, a vehicle registration, you don't own that car and so on. So then local government is the entity from which everything emanates that's important to controlling the rules and laws in our lives. So I, I just encourage people to go to city council meetings, school board meetings, county commission meetings, because this is where the changes are made. It is announced in your local paper every week that one of these groups will meet. And I'll tell you that if you don't go to the meeting, watch it on TV. I'm not suggesting that we become uh, video uh, 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 celebrities, but um, most people know us because they've watched us on television. And uh, they'll see us in the street and in the supermarkets, uh, shopping or wherever, and they'll just stop us uh, and tell us what they like, what they don't like, what changes they think should be made. So it gives uh, uh, citizens an opportunity to be involved from every angle of, of their community's life. Mrs. Coleman, we want to thank you for your time today and for everything that you've done for civil rights and everything for the local governments here. And we always ask this question to all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Gracious. I, I, I think more than anything, I, I, would, I would start by um, suggesting, first of all, that citizens take a role. Um, go to your, your uh, community um, organization meetings. Get those organizations involved in community life. That is suggesting that they go to city council, school board, and county commission meeting. Now, there, of course, they can have some say-so. But as far as what I would do, I think more than anything, I would be in touch with, as I am now, with uh, um, all of my elected officials. I leave for me and go to a meeting uh, shortly after this is over to meet with uh, some some elected officials in this community who are now meeting with the Secretary of Commerce. Um, there we're going to talk about black businesses getting more monies into the community. Um, and, and so I just suggest that, you know, any of us can just do more by getting involved in trying to see that the changes that we want to see happen do happen. Now, as it relates to maintaining democracy in America, I think we've got a challenge ahead of us. And I think all of us just have to do more. You don't, you know, almost don't have time to sit down. When you look at how fast things are happening, you just got to get out there and, and do what you can to uh, see that we don't lose that that we have lost. You know, one of the television announcers said this morning, that um, this is a time when you look at what's happening in Afghanistan, that we should all be coming together 
but we're fighting each other about whether we should go in, whether we shouldn't go back, who we should bring out and that kind of thing. There comes a time when you have to put small things aside and say, we're going to do what's best for America, not for our political party, not just for my friends, but what's best for America. And that's what's got to happen now. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.